James chapter 2 tonight, James chapter number 2. Have you ever, um, have you ever had someone that you didn't know it at the time, but the, uh, the time did reveal the fact that they lied to you right to your face? I mean, they said something, but they had no intention, um, no real plan to honor what they said. They just said something and they lied right to your face. There's something that, that is bothersome about that on many levels, but I think one of the, the most core reasons that bothers us is because we feel some sense of betrayal. Like I gave some, some uh, credence to what you said, some validity to what you said, but they lied right to your face. This was a little thing, so it's not, not huge and it's not consequential uh, to any great degree. But I remember a time, this was several years ago, Julie and I hadn't been married for long. And I don't know why I did this. It wasn't a great, it wasn't a great plan and we've laughed about it since. But I bought two chairs that um, I felt like we needed. And I bought them from a, a reputable place that was set up on an abandoned gas station um, lot. And so there were a couple chairs there. I mean, he had a, you know, a, a um, I don't know, like a big truck loaded with furniture. And these were two wingback chairs. I'm looking at my wife and she's smiling like I remember those chairs. She sold them later. And, uh, but, but I had those chairs. I bought those chairs. I thought we need these chairs. And, and so I bought them and, And the thing that I noted um, about these chairs is they didn't have the little arm covers that are supposed to go on a chair like that. So they just didn't have the, you know, those little fabric arm covers that are supposed to be there. And so I'm looking and I I said to the guy, I said, "They, they don't have the arm covers. He says, I'll send them to you. I said, well, I mean, you're gonna, you're gonna, he says, listen, I will send them to you. So you buy the chairs, I guarantee I will send you the arm covers. Well, you're already, you know, two steps ahead of me. The, the arm covers never came and I seriously question his intent to ever send them. He was saying something to make a sale, uh, but not necessarily to honor his word. Now, there is an interesting correlation between words and actions that we find very important and when we start considering the the opportunities that God has presented to the church and I'm speaking broadly about the church specifically campus church but to his his body here on earth the church there is a powerful correlation between words and works that matters. In fact, I titled the message the most powerful combination, words and works. The Bible says in James chapter two, beginning in verse number 18, these words. Yea, a man may say, thou hast faith and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O man, that faith without works is dead? Well, that's not an unfamiliar passage to most who are here this evening. We get the correlation between our faith and our works. 
Now, most of us have words down fairly well, but sadly at times, even in in the lives of those like mine that have grown up around the words, sometimes my works are strangely different than are my words or my my, um, statement of faith. Jesus summarizes this very powerfully in a direct statement where he asks a question. The question is in Luke 6, 46, and he says, and why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? It's a good question. Why are you saying Lord, Lord? He repeats it, he includes it twice. Why are you saying that there is this this, um, Adonai, this Lord, this ruler over all, and acknowledging the same, but you don't do what a follower of mine or a person who recognizes my lordship would and should do. When, When knowing something comes short of truly believing something, there are some evidences of the same. Knowing something, when it comes short of believing something, it starts to look like what we might find in the passage that we just read. The first thing that I notice when knowing comes short of believing is there is some, what we might call a false confession. A false confession. Now we have the right words, but there's something that doesn't, we use this expression, ring true about it. Again, what does the prophet in verse number 14, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? And then he asks a question, James, this, this first pastor at the church in Jerusalem, he says, can faith save him? Well, not that kind of faith. Now we know that, that a man is saved by faith apart from works. But what James is getting at is there should be something about your faith that works. There should be something about the reality of faith that is actually put into practice. It is important, and I will say it again, that we are saved by faith alone. However, James says here that there is a difference between saying you have something and actually possessing it. So no, 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 I have faith. But now there is something that is strangely void of the same. I mean, I can say one thing. I can say, I I have a million, I have millions of dollars. I have a million dollars. I can say that all I want, but, but at some point there would be some evidence of the same. We can say lots of different things, but the evidence is found not in the words alone, but in something that actually gives credibility, verifying our words. Now, this does become tricky when we start to talk about false confession. Okay, so do your works always line up with your words? There are recorded instances throughout Scripture of what we would refer to as carnal believers who were saved, but they certainly didn't look like it. But the the challenge that I find that we oftentimes are experiencing ourselves is we go to great lengths to prove that a carnal person is really saved instead of attempting to see that person evidence genuine saving faith. We many times just go to, to these great lengths and we say, well, here's why a carnal person can be saved. 
Are there people who are living carnal lives that are truly, genuinely saved? The answer is yes, there are. When we put two words together, we, when we call a guy like Lot just, we find that as a head-scratching moment. How can a guy like Lot, who would do what Lot did and live a life that Lot lived, have his righteous soul, the Bible says, grieved by the ungodly works of those around him, when it appears that Lot was involved in the ungodly works? So, so were there, are there, is there such a thing as a carnal believer? Yes, but why is it that we spend so much time trying to give veracity to the fact that there can be carnal believers instead of saying, hey, that, that's supposed to be the strange abnormality. That's not supposed to be the normal Christian life. The normal Christian life is supposed to be that we are demonstrating by our actions, by our works, the very fact that we have used our words to claim Jesus Christ. In the Bible, a guy named Simon had faith, but I don't believe that it is what we would call saving faith. Remember, even the demons believe that's faith and tremble, but it's not saving faith. In Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse number 18, and when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money, saying, give me also this power, that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. Wow, he saw something that was appealing to him about Christianity. He says, hey, hey, I'll pay you for that. Man, could I use that? Does he believe that that actually works? Does he believe there is something to Christianity? Well, clearly he does. He says, man, that works. I've never seen anything like that before. Hey, let me buy that from you. And the apostle Peter responds very strongly to this. Peter said unto him, thy money perish with thee. That's a strong statement. Peter just comes back. Listen, your, your money can die with you. And then he goes on, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter. For thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent therefore of this thy wickedness and pray God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. Okay, so, so this is some sense of false confession. I think that's one of the things that happens when our knowing comes short of believing. What else? Well, I think then there's a false compassion. Not just this false confession, but a false compassion. It's put on, but it's certainly not real. In James chapter two, again, verse number 15, if a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, Notwithstanding, ye give them not those things which are needful to the body. What doth it profit? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. In other words, this is not activated faith. It, it, there is something of, I, yeah, 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 I believe all of that. But now it has come short of being activated actually appropriated for themselves. They say things that like, oh, those are good words, but there's nothing behind the words. It becomes then what we might call not just this false confession, but a false compassion. And then we could look even a little bit further down in verse 19 and 20, again, James chapter two. And here we see what we might call false convictions. Thou believest that there is one God. Listen, that's a right conviction. 
true. I mean, thou believest that there's one God, amen. We would say we hold that as a conviction. We can't alter that. We can't fudge on that. It's not just a preference, that's a conviction. Thou believest that there's one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? He's saying your faith has not actually been put into action. It's there. It, it, we, you understand some things, but now saving faith says, I am going to put this. I'm going to, to borrow an old illustration. I'm going to actually sit down in the chair. I'm going to take what I know to be true and I'm going to make that true for myself. So what are some of the things that, that we see when our, our knowing comes short of believing? Well, false confession, false compassion, false conviction. You know, in that, in that passage, he says, oh, vain man. The, the word vanity, vain here, it simply means empty, empty. Listen, you're saying certain things, you're making certain claims, um, certain acknowledgements, but those are just empty. There is nothing really to it. How sad it would be if here at Campus Church, we were only becoming more knowledgeable, but not more actionable. That we had good knowledge, these things that we know to be true, but we're, we're not taking those things that we know and actually putting them into action. That we're saying, okay, I, I, I get this, I understand this, I say amen to this, I wholeheartedly endorse this, but, but now it doesn't actually move me to something. This, this should be true about so many, literally about every aspect of our life. Do you know, for a person to make claims of, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, but there is something that is inconsistent with him, it doesn't mean I'm not saying, well, you must not be a Christian. What I am saying is, wow, why wouldn't a Christian actually put into practice those things that are part and parcel with Christianity? So when we start to take this a little bit further, let's take our Bibles and turn to another passage of Scripture. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 John chapter 3. What happens when my words and my works agree? When, when saving faith is that which I am truly born into the family of God, but I don't want to live as an infant Christian. I don't want to live in this, in this sense of carnality. I want my Christian faith to actually be put to work. Okay, well, what does that start to look like? First John chapter three, verse number 18. I, I, I certainly understand we could spend a lot of time in first John um, and just walk through what does love in action look like? But there's a beautiful summary statement in verse number 18, first John chapter three. My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Okay. Now, sometimes I think what we've done is we've tried to remove something that the scripture is not necessarily removing. Are, are loving words good for a Christian to use? Yes or no? Well, of course they are. Um, are words even important? Do they matter? Should we use words and make statements of loving affirmation? The, the answer to that is absolutely. First John chapter three in this passage is not saying that your words don't matter. It's just saying that your words and your works should have some harmony. 
Remember what he says here is he says, okay, let us not love in word, neither in tongue. Okay, listen, don't just open your mouth and let stuff come out. Don't just use these words that have no significance. He says, but let's love in deed. In other words, in action and in truth. In other words, if you say something, mean something. Action and the words that match. Okay, don't just love in words. What does this start to look like? Well, I think when my words and my works agree, we have what we would call genuine Christianity. There's something that, that is like, wow, there's, there's a genuineness about this. There's something that is remarkable in a culture, in a world, in a, in a, a place where that is so strange. There's some things, you have met people before that you come away from and you say, wow, there was something refreshing about that person. Our teenagers just got back from a wonderful missions trip. On Wednesday night, much of campus church was concluding um, what we have called summer selectives. On that last night, um, I was in our youth meeting um, with our, our CCY teens. So our campus church youth, they had a special night that night where the teenagers who just got back from El Paso on a, on a trip started to share testimonies and teenager after teenager after teen sharing these, these wonderful testimonies and Pastor Gorley giving us a, a great summary of what happened during the course of that trip. There was a person that just kept coming up in their conversation. This was one of the men that was serving there in El Paso and and. The teenagers just kept, now Pastor Gorley brought his name up and then a teenager and then another teenager and then another teenager. I mean, over and over and over again, this person that they never met before, quite honestly, they may never meet again, had for a series of just a few days, a, a witness before them that was the resounding testimony was there's something genuine about his Christianity. There's something that I am, I am hearing and seeing that came together. This is the testimony. I, I haven't met him, but this is the testimony of the teenagers. It's like, wow, there's something really special about this. What is it? It's, it's just genuine Christianity. When our words and our works come together with some sense of harmony, a sense of genuineness. You know, to think about, sometimes we say, you know, words are, are not so important. No, they are important. It's part of genuine Christianity. We sometimes go to places like um, um, 1 Corinthians 13, 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. We, we, we start to talk about what does that look like? I'm become as a sounding brass, a tinkling cymbal. I'm just nothing but a lot of noise. A person like, oh, wow, what great words. But, but really, it's just this clanging noise. It is bothersome, irritating. Nobody likes it. So we say, okay, so, so there you go, pastor. The, the, that's the proof that words are really, yeah, but he goes further than, than disparaging words without love. Look a little bit further in the same passage. He says in verse number three, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, that's action. That's actually doing something. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor and though I give my body to be burned. Okay, what's the, what's the greatest example of love? 
Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life, though I give my body to be burned. If there's something that's missing, something that means that's not genuine, it's imitation, it's not the real thing. Though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. There is something Any one of those things by themselves are good, but you put these things together, words filled and fused with agape, heaven-sent love, and works infused with love, this heaven-sent agape, you put those together and it is a powerful, dynamic combination. It's genuine Christianity. What else do we see when my words and my works agree? Not only that's genuine Christianity, we would say there now becomes this growing consistency. Now we start to grow in something that I I start to not have these, these mammoth swings about my life. Have you ever thought about kind of charting your life, you know, these ups and downs and all over the place? Do you know these mammoth swings? I, this is just speculative, but, but do you think it's reasonable for a person to think that sometimes those swings would be moderated as we mature in Christ? In other words, many times we find that we are way up or way down because of the circumstances around us, not because of the Christ within us. And doesn't it seem reasonable that there might be this growing level of consistency when our walk with Christ is the same. And so, wow, when when I start growing in him, I start seeing my words and my works. Wow, there's a consistency about them. It's not this like, okay, I'm gonna gonna do this, do this, do this. And then it's like, I don't wanna do any of this, any of this. No, there's something that starts to balance out about my life. But, you know, we, we have been in James. Let me reference back to another section in James. James chapter two, beginning in verse number one. My brethren, have, ye, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons? For if there come into your assembly a man with a gold ring, goodly apparel, they, there come in also a poor man in vile raiment. And ye have respect unto him that weareth the gay clothing, the, the bright, beautiful clothing, and say unto him, sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, oh, stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves? and are become judges of evil thoughts? He said, okay, listen, if your faith is, there's something off about your faith, you're gonna have a tendency to not only be inconsistent yourself, you're gonna treat people inconsistently. What, what kind of people do you give more attention to or less attention to? What kind of a person gets your undivided attention and what kind of a person gets what's left over with your attention? There seems to be some growing consistency with how we treat one another when there is something growing rightly balanced about my genuine Christianity. There seems to be this growing consistency. And then not only that, back in 1 John chapter 3, verse number 19, there's this greater confidence. Like, I, wow, there's something about my faith that is not, not um, so feeble, that I just get knocked over or I even question like, am I, God, are you using me for anything? In 1 John chapter 3, verse 19, and hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. 
Well, what, what, what's going on? Okay, when, when I love one another with the same love with, wherewith he loves me, wow, there's something that is genuine about my Christianity, something about my works and my words that start to agree. I start to live out my faith. And he says, guess what's gonna happen? You're gonna have some growing confidence regarding how it is that the Lord is using you. There's something that's taking place in our hearts. And that is this matter of assurance. Loving in both word and deed means loving the brethren. And that statement of love must be followed by actions of the same. And it is not easy. In 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse number 20. If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he's a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him that he who loveth God love his brother also. Let's park here for just a few minutes. Since it's raining outside, we have plenty of time. Okay. Okay, so if a man says, I love God, but he doesn't really, no, I, no, 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 God I love, it's this guy I can't stand. The Bible says there's something that is inconsistent about this. There's something that again harkens back to James that says, okay, if you have faith, then, then it should work. Put it to use. Faith that works. If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he comes right out and very directly says, no, 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 you're lying. He's a liar. How is it that a person can, can not love the person that they see and love the person that they have never seen? He says, listen, you're not being truthful with others. And more importantly, you're not being true to yourself. So really, when we start to think about what is it supposed to look like? Well, he that loveth God should love his brother also. Okay, so who don't you love right now? Who don't you love? Now, let's be honest with yourself and, and honest before God. Who do you have a hard time loving? And then let's even shrink that down a little bit. Let's shrink it down to the, the house of faith. Who in the household of faith do you have a hard time loving? Okay, so just so we have a visual, how many, how many, um, how many non-college students, you're not in college, but you're here tonight, just for a visual. How many non-college, raise your hands real high. Okay, great, lots of you. How many college students in here tonight? Lots of you, put your hands down. So lots of college students, lots of non-college students in this room right now. We're about to have lots more college students in this room. A couple more, okay. So um, let's see, next week we will have, I don't know, about 3,000 more college students in here. Um, have you ever felt outnumbered before? Okay. Well, next week, if you're not a college student, you may. Now, if you're a college student in here tonight, then first of all, don't sleep because I'm gonna talk about that in just a moment. And that is proof positive you shouldn't be sleeping, okay? 
Okay, so, so if you're a college student, just bear with me for a moment. How many of you that are not a college student, it's just us tonight, it's just us, and they won't show it on the camera. How many of you have ever been bothered at a college student at campus church before? It's just us. Confession is good for the soul. How many of you have ever been bothered by a college student at campus church before? Raise your hand. Not so quickly. Okay, don't do it so quickly. Okay, how many of you have ever seen a college student play on their phone for the entire service? Don't raise your hand. Because I don't want to know. Okay. Play on their phone the entire time. How many of you have ever watched them text? other people the entire time. How many of you have ever watched them, uh, I don't know, work on a project? I'm curious about that one. How many of you ever watched them do, oh, some of you going, oh yeah, yeah, let me give you a testimony. Okay, so (laughs) lots of you like, yes, I've seen that. How many of you have ever watched, now if you're doing this right now, college student, or non-college, a husband, if you're doing this right now, now's the time to give them. How many of you have ever watched a college student, like, I mean, get comfortable during the course of the service before, raise your hand. Yes, okay. So, so have, you ever, um, have you ever been so bothered? Now I'm using college students, but it could, be, it could be anybody. How many of you have ever been so bothered in another person in a church service before that quite frankly, you just zoned out of the church service because you're so bothered at the person? Now you don't have to raise your hand. But have you ever been so bothered at a person that you honestly, you just couldn't, couldn't even participate in the service because of the, the problem of the person. At, at Campus Church, we are seriously, genuinely looking for ways that the Lord may expand our opportunities for influence in our community. It's a healthy question for any church and it's healthy for our church to ask specifically, if our church ceased to exist, would our community miss us? It's a good question. If if campus church no longer was in existence and next week was, we we just weren't here any longer, would Pensacola, the, the surrounding area, would it really miss us? So I think we, we have to wrestle with, grapple with that question and, and answers. God did intend for his church and those that comprise it to let their light so shine that they may see your, your what? Your, your good words. Oh, your good works. And glorify your father, which is in heaven. So Campus Church is looking for opportunities and seeking what part the Lord would have us play in our community. But Campus Church should never stray very far from a community that the Lord is bringing right to us. I mean, right here. That They're gonna fill this auditorium right here. And, and you didn't have to go find them. And they're going to literally be sent out into the uttermost parts of the world. College students from a place 
that the Lord has strategically placed us even by our name in a place of influence. We are called Campus Church. We meet on the campus of Pensacola Christian College. We are uniquely positioned, unlike any other place in this area, and strategically so. So how will Campus Church minister to those that the Lord has brought to us? Now we have to continue to figure out, okay, how, Lord, are you intending to use us beyond this, these walls, this place, this space? But, but we shouldn't overlook the, the fact that this place also is an opportunity for us to have something more than words of, I love God, to open our mouth and sing, I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice. Okay, what do those words do as far as our works are concerned? How have we attempted to engage a host of people that the Lord has brought here for a, a limited amount of time to interact with, to, to say, hey, uh, can I save you a seat? Or, hey, what's your name? Where are you from? Um, what, what's your major? To ask them, what do you have coming up this week? You got any big exams? Oh, hey, listen, I'll be praying. And then, and then you look for them the next week. And, and, and hey, how did it go on to find ways to establish what we so casually refer to as relationship. To, to establish something where a person could look at us and say, you know, there, there's something about them that's pleasant. Something about them that's, that's, that's nice. Something about them that is genuine. And, and your words are right. And then there's something even about works that start to, to resonate beyond the normal, casual pleasantries. It is some intentional desire to be a person of influence in the lives of those that the Lord is bringing to us right here at Campus Church. Again, I don't think this is the limit of, sometimes we have this misnomer, this mistaken idea that, hey, what can I do? I need to be serving at church. Well, there's lots of ways to serve at church, of course. I mean, we, we mentioned some of them tonight. We, we need people to help us with lockup. But if everybody looked for a way to serve the Lord at church on Sunday, we'd never be able to fulfill all of, of that desire for everyone to be somebody. If everybody sang in the choir... We'd have to put the auditorium there and the choir here. It just doesn't work that way. So really, the church is served not so much exclusively on Sunday, although that's a great place and time to serve, but the church is served every day of the week when we take the message, the reality, the, 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 the words and the work of Christ in our lives and we, and we start to infiltrate wherever, whatever dark place the Lord has, our light of Jesus Christ begins to shine. And one of those places where it can and should be shining is, is, is here, not necessarily through, through some means of a position, but through interacting with people that we have the opportunity to have influence with. It may be that the areas where people most bother you 
is sometimes the place where the Lord is most preparing to not only use you, but to teach you in the process. Sometimes those areas where it's like, oh, that, but let me tell you an area that really bothers me. Sometimes that might be the very place that the Lord is positioning you to be used in the lives of others and for those to be used in your own life. Years ago, if you asked teenagers from years ago that, that I had the privilege to youth pastor, if you said to them, hey, um, what, what video did Pastor Redland like to show the absolute most? He just showed it all the time. What was the video? Well, they would all say without any reservation, they, oh, that was a, we always saw a man called Norman. I mean, I, I probably showed it, I don't know. Uh, every other year we, we saw a video called a man called Norman. I don't know if you've ever seen it or not, but the guy that tells the story is Mike Adkins and he bought a house that he was so pleased to buy until he discovered it was across the street from a man called Norman. Norman Corbin was his name and, and he was the guy, in fact, let me, let me quote what Mike Adkins said. He said, this, Mike described him as the odd, creepy guy every town seems to have. He, he just was a strange man. He was the kind of guy that when Mike was a kid growing up in the same town, all the teenagers would make fun of. And the, the story of how the Lord used Mike in Norman's life and Norman in Mike's life is quite moving. I don't know how the Lord will, will direct you to minister to a horde of students that will take your place. They will, they will be sometimes distracting during a service, maybe rude. Uh, when a service, when someone says amen and you're dismissed, you have to hold on to your seat or you might get swept away in the tide. You, know, you just kind of will go along, you know, you're carried along. I don't know what, what, it, what the Lord is, is going to do with you through them. But I do believe that Campus Church should seize the opportunities that the Lord has by no mere chance placed us in a position to have influence. This is, this is an unashamed announcement right now. One way you might consider it's not the purpose of the whole message, but one way you might consider is through a program called the Freshman Hospitality Program, Campus Parents. It takes work. It's like, oh, I've got such a busy schedule. There's so much to do. But Campus Parents who have taken that on as an opportunity for influence have been exactly that in the lives of students that will never forget them. Because they, they had something about their words and something about their works that came together and agreed. Campus parents, it's just an opportunity for you, campus church. You say, well, I've, I've just, you know, from here in the community and yeah, I know. That's where we're all from here in the community and we're here at campus church 
There's going to be a lot of college students. This is for freshman college students coming in. And, and you may have an opportunity to have some touch in the life of someone that says, wow, uh, these people are from campus church. And, and I, would, I would own it. Yeah, we're from, yeah we, we're from campus church and, and we wanted to, to, you know, find a way to connect with some college students. And, you know, I know people who've been involved in the, in the, the campus parent program and then they just adopted lots of campus kids. They just adopted, they'd, they'd meet them in church, look for them, bring them something, a little bag of cookies before the service. I mean, they, they just adopted kids and kids gravitated toward them. You talk about their house and at Thanksgiving, it's just like, man, it's loaded with adopted kids or kids that they've had over the years. And it wasn't just a, a, you know, a one and done freshman thing. I mean, there's seniors and, and kids who'd come from New Hampshire. No, I always go there for Thanksgiving. You know, it's just, it's just somebody that had influence. You, you might consider that as one opportunity, one means by which. There's a limited opportunity right now. We're strategically, purposefully, sending out something through Realm tonight that'll tell you more about the campus parent freshman hospitality program. You'll find out when it closes, when, how long you have to sign up, what's it look like. But would you consider that as one opportunity? I mean, we've mentioned it casually in the past, but the more I started to think about it, the more I thought, man, this is an opportunity for us to be people of influence with, with those the Lord's bringing to us. It's an opportunity for us to have words where we say, Lord, I love you and I love my brother also. You say, well, they're, they're oftentimes wrought with a lot of problems. I'll close with this. This is my favorite youth ministry verse. Proverbs 14, 4. Where no oxen are, the crib is clean. But much increase is by the strength of the ox. Listen, if you don't want to clean up messes in the barn, then don't have any oxen. But if you want to get some work done, if you want things to move forward, if you want to have something of strength, then you better have some oxen in the stalls. And just be aware with the opportunity to get a lot accomplished, there, there's also going to be some accompanying things to clean up. Isn't it great that the Lord has brought to campus church the opportunity to get so much done? And in the process, there, there may be some things that are not necessarily all that appealing. There's some things to clean up, some messy situations. It's messy church. But isn't that what God built us to accomplish? Isn't that what he has given us strength to do? To advance something bigger than us. For a cause that is bigger than us. In ways that actually turn around to strengthen us. Things are about to get messy. May God advance his work through the same.